I'm here with my dad, and uh, this is the first song I ever played and sang in front of anyone because he got me to get up there and play at a folk concert at Thomas Jefferson High School in 1970-something or others. A child arrived the other day came to the world in the usual way There were planes to catch and bills to pay I learned to walk while I was away He was talking for a new and as he grew He'd say, I'm gonna be like you, Dad You know I'm gonna be like you Welcome to the Father's Day. I am Jesse Lee Peterson. Thank you all for being with me so much. Uh, remember that the Father's Day is now on Locals.com, so click the link in the description to support our work. And thank you in advance. I have with me Mike Rayburn, and he is a keynote artist, motivational speaker, and creator of the What If Experience. Mike, thank you so much for coming on, man. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jesse. It's an absolute honor to be with you to be on the show. Right on. I was talking to you about, I noticed on your videos, you play guitar um, uh, at your events. And I was asking, right. are you, are you self-taught or did you go to school for it? Yes. Uh, I started off for the longest time I was self-taught. Uh, and then uh, as I make the joke on stage, the problem with being self-taught is the teacher's not that good. So uh, I, I ended up with a degree in classical guitar uh, from James Madison University in Virginia. And I've since studied jazz. I've gone over to Spain and studied. I've, I've studied a lot of different places nice. just to keep getting better. That's cool, man. So, Mike, what, what got you started? Why did you decide to be a, become a motivational speaker? Well, interestingly, it's a, it's a career that kind of chose me in a lot of ways, where I had been playing as a guitarist and comedian and, and, and uh, playing at colleges, playing comedy clubs and that kind of thing. And the whole time, I had read books like Psycho-Cybernetics by Maxwell Maltz, and I'd listened to Tony Robbins and, and uh, um, Les Brown and a few others who were really influential to me. And so uh, I started putting these little messages in my, you know, positive messages in my shows, just short little parts. And a friend of mine heard me at a comedy club in Nashville and said, Mike, you're clean, you're funny, and you have a message. You're a speaker and you don't even know it. And I said, what's a speaker? And <laughs> I realized that she was talking about a motivational speaker. And I realized I could be doing something different, something that no one's done before. There was no one teaching innovation creativity and performance, teaching using guitar and comedy rather than PowerPoint and statistics. So uh, so I thought, well, I'll try this and I'll teach what I know works. And somehow I hit a niche and it, it caught on. So uh, I've been blessed to have a lot of uh, uh, a lot of success with that. Nice. And what is uh, what if experience? What is that? What if, the what if keynote experience? What I do is I teach using the question, what if? Uh, every time you ask the question, what if, you open up possibilities. What if we could do that? What would it look like? I know we never have before, but what if we try? Every major invention, achievement, or unlikely victory in human history 
started in some way or another with a bold what if question. Uh, what if we could fly? What if we could walk on the moon? What if we could hold all the world's knowledge in our hands? And, um, and so I teach how to use that to apply it to, uh, to stop managing change and start to create change. In other words, to be the leaders of change, uh, which is what, by the way, side note, that's what I love what you're, what you do. That's why I, he didn't know this, but I've followed him for a long time. Um, right. that uh, I love how, what you do and how you do it because you are out there trying to create change. I use it for radical problem solving. Uh, I use it to p- help people to start to think big. One of the great, uh, casualties of COVID-19 is it taught us all to stop thinking big and we need to revive that. Uh, so that's, that's, that's what the, what if keynote experience is. Uh, and I, and then I just use the guitar to illustrate how I use it, applying it to music that we've heard before and create new music from that. And then I use that becomes a metaphor for my attendees to use in their lives. When I was, uh, growing up, uh, and the generation before me, and maybe even a part of the generation right after me, they seem to be self-motivated. But I noticed that the millennials and younger people are not self-motivated. They need someone or something to motivate them. Why is that? That's a great question. And I believe, personally, my answer is, there's been a change in the foundational family. There's been a change in how kids grow up. Uh, when I grew up, my dad, you know, he instilled certain values in me. My mom instilled certain values in me that caused me to want to, uh, to better myself, to move forward, to not expect it to be done for me, right. uh, to, to rise to the occasion, the, what I would call the calling of manhood. Uh, the calling to step up and be, you know, strong there. And so I was motivated by those things. Plus, um, I think back then there was a little bit more attention to a sense of purpose in life. One of the things I teach is that this, the most powerful motivational force on this planet is not power, money, or fame. It's a sense of purpose. Why we do what we do means everything to us. And so I believe that that was instilled in us by a nuclear family a long time ago, more so than it is today. I mean, we've tried to do that um, with with our kids, uh, but uh, I think that that's missing right now. Would you? I, do you agree with that? When I was growing up, there was a father around, or grandfather, or in some cases stepfathers, and those men they were always doing something. They were working, and they would encourage you to work. It's like it was it was kind of. They instill that in you to deal with hard times. Because I noticed this generation after me is very soft and they don't want to, they can't handle anything that's rough. If, if it doesn't come lightly and easy and, and non-offensive, they don't tend to want to get out there and do it. And when I moved to L.A. at 18, I went through a lot of jobs. I went through a lot of difficult moments. But I never thought about not going, keep going. I, you know, I didn't know where I was going, but I was going from job to job, situation to situation, issue to issue. And I never complained about it. And I didn't think it was abnormal. But this generation of men and women tend, tend to think that way now. And I know yeah. it's because I was influenced by my 
father and grandfather. I even saw my grandmother and mother. My mother didn't have to work because her husband worked. But it was like it was natural then and it's unnatural now. They don't seem to be tough with anything. I agree with you. And I think one of the things that we notice is that uh, millennials and uh, Gen Z, as they cut into the workforce, it's like they need more motivation. Yeah. Or the incentives, the incentives, they have to be rewarded, you know, like monthly. Or where, whereas we, you and I knew what, what it was like and still do yeah. to work and work and work for a year or more before we got any kind of a payoff from it or any kind of an acknowledgement. Right. And, so, and, and so that's what happened. So, so here, so imagine now somebody who needs that constant reinforcement, that constant encouragement, that constant, like, you're okay, you're doing great or whatever. <laughs> they need that. Yeah. And if they don't get it, they become unmotivated. And as a society, we've also said, oh, well, then you're entitled to it anyway. And that's the problem. Yeah. And so the, I guess the primary point is it starts in the home. If you don't have that father and mother there to be that example, the mother tends to smother you. She doesn't tend to want you to feel pain. Whereas the father, he tends not to smother and he doesn't care if you feel pain or not. No pain, no gain. So it, it, it seems as though it starts in the home first. If you don't have that father there, that's when the softness begins. Totally agree with you. And that's, that's one of the, another one of the reasons that we would have that softness is that we've seen, and I know you've, I've heard you talk about this, we've, uh, and I totally concur that we have, there's, there's a movement in the world to, to destroy the nuclear family, yeah. to break it down, yeah. to uh, dismantle it to uh, tell men that they don't, they can't be men, uh, that there's something toxic about masculinity and those kinds of things. And so when we have that working against us as a family, then it makes it easier for the kids to either be uh, too far on that side, which we can see in gangs, or too little on that side where we see sort of weakness. Yeah, amazing. What are some of the complaints you hear from people who attend your uh, motivational uh, conferences about why they don't just get up and do it? Um, I think uh, some, I think one of the biggest challenges is a lack of belief in themselves or a belief that it is possible. Um, a, a, uh, there's the, uh, the epidemic of I'm not enough. Yeah. And the epidemic of, and that's been fed to us. It's, it, it comes, there's also a, a level of that it comes natural. There's a, what they call a negative negativity bias in the world. Um, and, but then when they've been told by so many people, uh, see, I don't like it when people are told they're victims. Um, I, right, I, it me drives either. me. Yeah, it drives me crazy. In fact, I have a, <laughs> I, I was able to respond to that in a presentation not too long ago. Um, where, uh, so, so anyway, they, I, I, they're not, they're told they're victims. They're told they can't do it. And then they wonder why they can't do it. Well, it's because there's a belief problem. There's yeah. a, uh, you, know, you and I grew up with a sense of purpose. Some, I know I got the work ethic from my dad. I got the sense of purpose from my mom. And, uh, and those together somehow through it all sort of worked for me. And w we need that. And we see so many, and, you know, my head is off and my heart is out to any single mom raising kids because that's one of the hardest freaking things in the world. But I think of that as much as a crisis of manhood, men not stepping up to the plate and yeah. being there. Yeah. And so if kids come out of that, if they don't believe that they can, that's, a, that's the number one, one challenge. 
I often think about how today's society is uh, a lot of people feel like victims. And they literally feel, they think that way and feel that way. And I honestly, honestly don't know what it's like. I can't imagine myself feeling or thinking like a victim. It has never in my whole life occurred to me to think that way or to feel that way. And so it's just crazy to me to have that kind of mindset that I'm a victim and I can't make it in life. I need someone else to tell me how to think, what to do, how to do it, when to do it, if to do it. I can't imagine living that way. That's like suicide. I, I is I can't I I know life has many situations and I grew up knowing that, but I can't I've never thought even as a kid, I never thought of myself as a victim. I don't know how to think that way. Right. It, I think and again, and hearing you talk and hearing you talk now, it violates your sense of personhood. And it does the same for me. My sense of personhood says, doggone it, I'm going to get out there and do it. You throw something in my way, fine, I'm going to yeah. beat it. And, and, uh, and here's the challenge. This is what I was teaching uh, these kids. I was uh, presenting for, uh, for some students. And um, I said, the moment you blame your lack of success on anyone or anything other than yourself, you take all of your power and you hand it to the very people you don't want to have it. That's right. The only way to change the system and the best way to stick it to those who would hold you down is to become a raving, undeniable success. I even, I even talk about uh, Jackie Robinson. Um, there's a reason they chose Jackie Robinson to break the major league, the racial barrier in Major League Baseball. And it wasn't that he was strong enough to fight, though it certainly was. He was stronger even than that. He was strong enough not to fight, to simply let the world feel the weight of his brilliance. He became so good that every kid from every background wanted to be Jackie Robinson. And so that's what I try to to instill in, in, in people who come to my presentations. It's like, no, choose to be out there. Let the world feel the weight of your brilliance. Be your excellent self because it's in each one of us to do that. <laughs> I'm jumping into motivational speaker mode, but that's the exact, I, I believe is passionate. That's a very good point. I noticed that a lot of people are, are, are they're so quick to want to fight back. You mentioned Jackie Robinson. Jackie allowed people to say what they wanted to say about him. They called him names. They, they didn't want him to be a part of certain teams. But he didn't focus on that at all. That did not matter to him. He just went out and did, as you said, he did what he needed and wanted to do. And his ability spoke for themselves and his understanding of not trying to fight people to try to convince them of anything, just being you and do your thing. But to now, people always clashing, especially if you make them uncomfortable or whatever. They don't tend, they tend to want to fight rather than let a person fight by themselves and not get involved. Exactly. That's and, a very good point, man. That, that doesn't change anything. That won't change. Fighting back, that fighting that we see, it doesn't change anything. No, what it changes, doesn't. Is when people see success, yeah. when they see brilliance, when they see you becoming your greatest self, yeah. um, then, then there, what I say is when you, if you'll step out there and boldly, unapologetically become your best self, you give others permission to do the, do the same. Yeah. They see you and you become an inspiration or a role model. And the challenge, and I know you've talked about this before, the challenge is a lot of our role models today aren't that. They're right. a lot different than that. 
you know, I don't want to get all specific here, but there, there's some out there that are teaching some wrong stuff. Absolutely. You mentioned purpose. How does one find his or her purpose? That's a great question. I have two programs that are uh, that we do the What If Weekend and something called the Virtuoso Underground One Year Program uh, to help people do that. In a nutshell, though, number one, you look at what you do well, what you have a knack for, and there'll be some things you do well and you love, and some things you do well and you don't love. But look at what number one, your gifts. Number two, your talents. What are the specific ways? Like my. I, um, uh, my, one of mine would be music. One of mine would be exhortation. I have a, a gift for uplifting people. For I, It matters to me that the people around me do better. And the other thing would be look at um, your passions. What is it that, that, that you love to do? What is it that you just get excited about doing every time? One way to look at it is what is it that you would do for free but you'd love to get paid for? Um, and uh, and to, to, uh, so what we look for is where – the the thing that hits all of those that hits your gifting that hits your talents and hits your passions in those three and I'll give you a quick example I um, am talented at math I have a good brain for math I also hate math because my dad was a math teacher and I didn't get along with him and so I I, I wasn't I don't I don't aspire to do more math right um, I have a passion for endurance sports cycling running those kinds of things. I'm also flat-footed, so I'm not going to win any land speed record. Um, however, when we look at music, exhortation, meaning uplifting people, and um, uh, in my past, I love music. I have a passion, so there's a passion for it. I have a gifting for it. I'm good at it, um, and um, and I've, I'm talented at it. And so that and speaking and you know, being on stage, just reaching out and trying to uplift people becomes my purpose. I know that that's my purpose. Now, I know that I'm, I'm, uh, I'm pretty sure we're on the same page here, but I believe we also find it through prayer and through God. Um, I think that God designed us a specific way. One of the ways God talks to us, people say, well, how do you know it's God talking? Well, he designed you. So what you were born with, talents, gifts, passions, those kind of things, those are kind of a, a, an instruction from God, like, here's where I want you to go. He would not give me the talents I have and say, go be an accountant. Nothing wrong with being an accountant, but that's just not my skill set. Right? right. Does that right. make sense? That makes sense. When I, when I uh, hear people saying they, they're looking for their purpose, I didn't, I, I've never looked for my purpose. I didn't even know. You know, I have read, I heard as a little kid that your purpose will find you. And not to look for it. So I grew up not looking for a purpose. I just did what was in front of me to do. And so I've done different jobs, as I said. And I never imagined that what I do now, write books and hold meetings and do this and all that, um, counsel people and all the stuff I do, I never imagined that I would be doing that. It just came, one thing just led to another one. And what I do, I have no doubt. It never doubt never come that this is not what I should be doing because I know that it's not from me. It's totally from God, and He's He is opening ways for it to happen. He is causing it to happen, and I literally have nothing to do with it. It's weird. I have weird in a good way. I have nothing to do with it. I, I just get up in the morning and do what I need to do, 
and let it each moment take care of itself. So it's like my purpose did find me and I would I didn't look for it because I, I, I didn't know what it is that I was supposed to be doing. And so I just been, I've been doing what's in front of me to do all my life. Well, that's, that's interesting. We both said the same words. You said you let your purpose find you. Yeah. And I said that this is a career that chose me. Yeah. I believe we follow, you know, because I, 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 like you, I wasn't looking for my purpose. I was never told by my parents, like, you need to find your purpose. Right. Um, I just followed what made sense, where I was led. And I believe also because I am a Christ follower and uh, I believe in God, I believe that God will lead us to that if we yeah. open ourselves to it and if we ask prayerfully about it. And so when it it wasn't until I didn't become a, a, a speaker, a motivational speaker, until I was about 39 or 40. And so that's kind of later to find your purpose or whatever. <laughs> However. I do know this from the studies, the other studies I do about this, that most people, most adults who between ages of about 35 and 60, who lose a job or they get laid off or they quit or they get fired or whatever, at the beginning when they lose this thing they've been doing for a long time, they feel like it's the end of the world. Yeah. And what they find is they look back and realize that's when they choose to do the real thing that they were meant to do. And their lives are so much better because of it. Their careers, their incomes that are so much better because they made that switch. And they look back at losing that job or whatever it was. They end up looking back at it as the greatest thing that ever happened to them. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I started doing what I do at the age of 38. And, and prior <laughs> to that, yeah, prior to that, I was just doing different and different jobs. But this came about when I turned 38. So you're absolutely right about that. That's a very interesting yeah. point. On your website, you mentioned some of the problems that are holding people back. For example, old thinking and resistant to change. Um, what is old thinking first? Old thinking. Uh, I get all kinds of organizations who will have people who have been there for a while. And uh, the basic premise is if it ain't broke, don't fix it. In fact, <laughs> I start my presentations by saying, okay, everybody, complete this phrase. If it ain't broke, and they all say, don't fix it. And I say, here's the problem with that. Time breaks everything. If it's working, if it's cutting edge and the latest, greatest thing, its replacement is on a drawing board right yeah, now. Yeah. And so uh, I tell them that what we need to be able to do in fact, I'll take it right to that moment. Like here we are sitting in this room with these people and I'll say, look, what I want you to do from this point forward is to be willing to set aside the old process, the old way of thinking, old stuff, step into the new and say, what if, what if we did try this? And for the skeptics, I make the point, Hey, the old thinking is still there. You can pick it up again if you need to. So old thinking is, um, is ways that, 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 People have done, and here's, here's the challenge. In the past, they were successful. Old thinking was new thinking at one point. And so they've gone with it. But there are certain people, and there's a whole spectrum here, but there's certain people who are way more resistant to change than other people. Oh, okay. And so, what I, so, so I try to make it universal for if you're, if you're against change or if you're just leading change. Um, either way, I want them to develop a mindset uh, that we are the ones to create change. 
Um, that's what I love about what you do. It's what I love about what I do. It's what in some way or another, we are willing to go forward in public and be, and say, and say, and try to create a change in the world that we feel like needs to be made. Uh, one last thing about that too. What I noticed in society today, people don't most, not all, not all, not all, not all, but most people don't tend to appreciate jobs. They don't appreciate what they have. And what I reflect Every job I've always had, even in picking cotton, I, I always had a great appreciation for the job. I was grateful that I was able to work and earn a paycheck. It didn't matter what it was. And I've had, since being out here, I've had all kinds of jobs. Supermarket, I worked in warehouses, I worked at a, a fish market, I worked as a janitorial service. Whatever job I've had, I've always had the same attitude. And I'm not bragging about it. I just noticed the change in society today. I've always had the same attitude I have about this job. Whatever I do, I'm always grateful because I'm like, on my own, I'm doing my thing. I'm earning a living. I'm learning things. And in everything that I do, I learn from it. And so I've always had a good attitude about jobs. Where that tend to be missing now, most people don't have a good attitude. They'll say, oh, this job is a janitorial job. I don't like it. It's a, this kind of job. It doesn't make me look right or something. They don't have the right attitude about life and about work. Absolutely right. I, I could not agree with you more. And it, you just said something that I think is really important to point out. The cure for victimhood, the cure for blame is gratitude. Yeah. You can simultaneously blame and be thankful. You can't simultaneously feel like you deserve and be thankful. Yeah. You're just so thankful. So, yes, I, and, and I have a similar background. I, I sold shoes at, disc, at a discount shoe store. I, uh, I, was, I worked in a mill. I, I was a groundskeeper. I worked in a mill. I worked as a self-employed cabinet maker. I had, and, then, and then when I started playing, just playing guitar in bars during college, I ended up finding a way I could pay for college, but I played comparably. I played all the worst gigs on the planet. Yeah, you know, yeah. I was, every every moment of the day, every moment of those, I was like, "Who am I to be blessed to be able to do something I love and get paid?" Absolutely. Even though it was four hour bar gigs for sixty bucks, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and so, and that's and that's something I would love to see revived. Um, I would love to see that. And I try to get that with my kids every now and then with my kids who are 19 and 22, I'll get some of that. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll detect a little entitlement, you know, a little blame, a little victimhood there. And we try to nip that in the bud right away. That's right. That's right. And uh, I reflect on when I first started bond, my nonprofit, it, it started out small, you know, you did, a lot of people didn't show up to meetings and things like that. But I was grateful if it had been one person showed up, I saw a thousand. I was grateful to work with one as I am to work with a thousand. But most people wouldn't be grateful to work with one. They need a thousand to feel good about themselves, I guess, feel their egos. But I'm grateful dealing with one as I am dealing with a thousand. Yep. And, and gratitude is the key. Gratitude. There's just no replacing gratitude. Yeah. And it's one of the gifts of the spirit. It's one of the, it's, it's just, it's, there's so much to it. Can I ask you if you said that you, you know, about 38 is when 38 years old is when you started doing what 
now has sort of taken off and, and is just clearly your calling. Yeah. Do you feel a sense of purpose in that now? Well, I don't know what purpose feel like. It just feel natural. It feel, it's, it's like I see nothing else to do but what I do. My mind, never, it doesn't tell me, oh, you should be building houses or you should be an actor or you, it doesn't tell me that. You know how you have a job, most people don't like the job they do and the mind is constantly telling them they should be doing something there. Oh, if you had this or that. But my mind doesn't tell me that. And I never get that feeling. It just feels natural. And now if that's what purpose means, then yes, this is what I'm meant to do. This is what the Father wanted me to do. If that's what purpose means, it just, it just seemed natural to me. And yet, yes. I'm surprised too, Mike, because, you know, I, I finished high school, but barely. I don't speak English that well. And because of the cleft lip, my words are not all the way clear. But yet, it, I never imagined I'd be doing it. But yet, it seemed natural. Yeah, it's natural. And here's the key to your success. It's authentic. When you say what you say, when you talk, when you ask questions, when you share what you believe, it's coming from the heart. It's not something made up. It's not, it doesn't have some you know, crazier, larger agenda. Right. It's just who you are. I feel like God uses you that way. And I, I, I like to feel the same thing for me. And so one of the ways I share this with audiences is that there's a reason that, at least in English, purpose and service almost run it. Um, we find purpose usually where we find service. And I get the feeling that you feel a sense of service in what you do. I mean, you're helping people. You're, you know, I, I like to think that I'm doing the same thing. And so that that's one aspect of it is uh, we usually find purpose in how we can help and uplift others. And so what I do, would you call that purpose, even though I don't think of it that way? Would that be the same as purpose? I would, I would say there's no doubt it's purpose. Oh, okay. I would say 100%. I totally believe that's your purpose. I've learned because we work a lot. I mean, yes, I present for a lot of larger groups, but I also we have some programs where we work one on one with people and uh, or in, in a small like a mastermind kind of group. And um, and, and so I'm I, I've gotten a little bit better at being able to sort of identify when I hear that in someone. And I, there's no question with you. So even if you don't use that word, that that's just semantics. Right. It's, I would still say you are following your sense of purpose. And, and it's clearly we also find that where, like you said, um, it found you yeah. or you you just fell into it. it that's usually what happens is uh, is. Again, it's a career that found me. Someone suggested it to me, and I said, "What?" And so, um, and then it clicked. The other thing is, it's clicked for you. It's cl it, it's clicked for me. It's yeah. it's, it's got a, a, a bit, a little bit of a life of its own, right? And so, and that's because people are resonating with it. I always tell people, whatever they are doing, never compare themselves to anyone else. Don't try to be like anyone else. Don't try to make as much money or less money as anyone else. Don't don't compare. One of the worst things that you can do in life is to pair, compare yourself to someone else. I'm not as good as, or I'm not this. That's a horrible mistake. I never do that. I never try to speak like someone else. I never try to be. I learn from different people, but I never try yeah. to be like them. Uh, you know. And I think that yes. people make a mistake when they they try to be like someone else or compare themselves. Then they lose themselves. 
when they do that, and now they're becoming like someone else, and you can't be happy being someone else. Exactly. And and that's why that's why I was drawn to your interviews and your presentations uh, in the beginning. That's that's what because again, it's going back to that word authenticity. It's who you are. Yeah. And so I I like to think I mean people come away from my presentations they're usually saying um Number one, boy, you enjoy doing what you do. <laughs> I say, yeah. And the other thing is, um, is that they uh, they will they will say it's 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 like you're it's like you're doing what you're meant to do. Yeah. It's you, it's it's your, it's your calling. And you know, I always try to tell people like figure out what message when people when new speakers talk to me about what they're going to speak about. Yeah. I say find that thing you just want to shake the world and get them to understand. Oh, That's maybe. the thing you should talk. Are you, are you are you a Christian? Yes, sir. And what does it mean to be a Christian to you? To me, it means I've accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior, and uh, and that I that I no longer live; it's Him living in me. And um, do you have fear? Yes. Now I try. I've been told by the Bible, "Fear not," um, and uh, it says that a lot. And so I plug that in. Um, so there are things that scare me from time to time. However, the way I deal with that, talk to myself about that, is uh, uh, to say that God's with me. No matter what I do, God's with me. He's got this. Uh, we're dealing with a health challenge in the family for, for our niece, and uh, we trust that God's got this. Uh, that, so I, I get scared for her outcome and what's going to happen there. And and the, the great thing, though, is ultimately I don't have fear in that I know, you and I both know, we have eternal life. If I die right now, if I die 40 years from now, either way, I know I am, I feel very confident uh, because I've you know, gone through you know, allowing myself to be weak because that's how his power is perfected. Um, I know that I know that God's got me, and so uh, whatever happens now, if I just get through this life, is a lot better on the other side. <laughs> what does fear feel like inside of you, and, and what brings it on? Fear. Well, I get momentary fears because I do things like uh, cycling and uh, whitewater kayaking, and some of those situations will make me, you know, there's a quick fear, but that's just a right. that's a survival fear. That's right. A quick that's fine. Fear. Yeah. Yeah. The larger fears, um, will I have enough money? Uh, will, you know, have I done something wrong? I fear, you know, offending my wife. <laughs> you know, I fear, uh, so I fear like doing something that, that would, I fear doing things that are dishonoring of people. That's more of the fear that I feel. And when I feel that, it becomes, the antidote to that is usually me putting all the pieces on the table and being, you know, confessional and, vulnerable and transparent about things. Amazing. What would happen if you offended your wife that bring on fear? What do you think would happen if you offended her? Um, I would, I love her so much and I love us being together so much that I, I would be scared. My fear would be for some reason she would, it's a fear of rejection that she would somehow not want me. Somehow it might do something to, to upset our relationship. And actually, that's a good thing. That's where fear becomes a bit of a guide. It's like going through this and going, okay, you have a decision on whether you do this or that. 
this has this outcome with her and it's positive, and this has this outcome with her and it's and it's negative. So the fear of losing her, or to and maybe not that bad, but fear <laughs> of, of hurting her feelings or fear of of um, uh, messing up, um, will cause me sometimes to make a right decision. So I think fear is not wrong. It's just, and in fact, you can't have. There's no such thing as courage without fear. If there were no fear, there would be no need for courage. Amazing. And, and I think that's an integral part of, of both masculinity and femininity, but I mean, there's a masculine form of that. Does your wife fear you? What's that? Does she, your wife, does she fear you of hurting you? Making so. you does she, she, is she concerned about hurting your feelings or offending you? Um... I think she has, I think most people who get along have some level, it's not a huge fear. It's not like something where you're shaking or you're, uh, you know, wanting to run away or those kinds of, it's not that kind of fear. It's more of an inner guide. Um, you know, all knowledge begins with the fear of God. When we say that, we don't say, we're not saying that you have to cower in the corner because you feel like God's going to strike you down because you stole a paperclip from work. What that is, is the word fear and the word reverence had the same meaning at that time when it was written that way. And so the, the fear kind of goes with a reverence uh, and um, uh, a respect for, for, the, for um, the beauty and the uh, value of what's in front of you. And so that's kind of the way I look at it. It's more of a reverence. It's more of a like, hold it. I love her. Therefore, I want to honor her with what I do. I don't want to disgrace her or disrespect her. Does she offend you at times? What's that? Does she offend you, hurt your feelings, or or say things that make you? There there have been a couple of times. Uh, Luckily, she and I, uh, this is both, I I hadn't wanted to be divorced. I ended up getting divorced from my first wife. And this is a second marriage for both of us. And we both absolutely love spending time together. We love being together and we have almost no bumps in the road. And the few that we have, we don't allow to last for more than 24 hours. We've really kept to that. And so, uh, and so, yes, I think we both do, but luckily we get along so well that that's not, it doesn't really come up. Is she older or younger than you? She's younger. She's younger by a lot. She's 20 years younger than me. Oh, okay. Nice. Um, yeah, <laughs> When I told when I told my son, when I was told my son and my daughter that, that I was dating someone because this she's the only one I dated after the divorce. When I said I'm dating someone, and uh, he asked how old she was, and I told him, he said, "Huh, Dad, still?" <laughs> Are you the head of your wife? Uh, we do take it. We do take the biblical perspective on that. So yes, in in the sense that I'm the spiritual leader of the family. And she loves that. She respects that. She responds to that. She was looking for that. And I, I and the thing is, when we do that, uh, when we when we follow kind of the way God described this, it's not. It actually allows a woman to flourish rather than to be uh, somehow repressed or held down somewhere. And so we both have our roles, and we recognize the role of men is different than the role of women. Equal, different. And uh, I think anyone who's in that, in that space, uh, who's married and practices things in, in sort of a biblical way, uh, recognizes that there's no, 
you know, the, it's, it starts with this. It starts the, those things in the Bible where they say um, uh, that people sometimes use to criticize Christianity. They'll say, you know, the sub- wife submits to your husband. Well, the first thing it says is submit to God, both of you. And the second thing it says is submit to one another. Then it says stuff. So if you start with those two, everything else kind of falls in line. Oh, and so you are the head of your wife? Um, we haven't used that term to say it. Um, we are, I mean, we are partners and I am the spiritual leader and she would, she would agree. She would probably say the same thing. Um, and, but we just haven't used or thought through the term head of my wife. And now that you've been asked, are you the head? Now that you've had time to think about it, are you the head of your wife? Um, I it depends on what the definition of being the head, like the leader of my wife, in that sense. I'm sorry. Uh, does she? Uh, let me put it this way: Does she? So right now, you can't say you are the head of her. Your wife. Uh, I'm trying to get the definition of head. The the head of my wife, meaning like the leader of my wife. I I am I am the leader of our family. Yes. But how about of so, your wife? Um. I guess so. I, I, I guess so. I, I, we just have, again, we just haven't used that term, but I guess so. Does he obey you? Um, <laughs> yes, except that I'm not one who gives a lot of commands. So it's not too hard to, it's not, <laughs> it's not that, it, here's the thing though. When people ask that, especially if they're not embracing of Christianity, what they're looking for is that controlling um, uh, disciplinarian, um, militaristic fa- uh, husband or father figure. And I grew up with one of those. And so I'm not going to become that. I, I, I didn't like that about my dad. And so, so I think that when we talk about being the head or whatever, it's a leader, but it's a partnership. So yes, ultimately it would go to my decision and she would, she would default to that by her own choice, not by my saying anything, because I wouldn't do it that way. However, what we find is when you have things in right relation, they work and you don't have a repressive or a negative relationship or a negative um, reaction to things. Does that make sense at all? I'm black and slow, so I may have missed it. Um, and so I asked, does she obey you? Uh, did she say yes or no to that? I said uh, I don't give enough commands to really know that. <laughs> I don't uh, – <laughs> Uh, we we work it out in a different way. Here's why. I don't want to be the guy who says, do this. I'm not that guy. I'm not going to be and that why guy. don't you want to be that guy? Uh, because that was, that was uh, uh, I don't think that that's uplifting to her. I don't think it's respectful to her. Uh, and it's not respectful to who she is as a human being, as God's child, and as a woman. Um, because I respect her so much as a woman, and I respect her opinion and her brains and her smarts. When we have a decision where we're, we're something we're going to make a decision about, she would probably say, yes, it defaults to, to your choice. But we make those decisions together. We, we just we just do. She might default to my, you know, my uh, decision on that or my choice on that. Uh, however, we, it hasn't ever come to that. So how do you I'm glad to ask the question, though. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to kind of explore that on my own. Yeah. 
How do you deal with the hell in her? In your wife? The hell? Uh-huh. In your no. wife. I don't. What do you mean by the hell in her? <laughs> you know how when she wake up mad about nothing, or you come home from work and playing your guitar, you had a good time, and she got an attitude, and you're like, what's wrong? Nothing. Or you wake up in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Great question. And I'd love to hear your same answer to the same, answer to the same question. However. How do you uh, deal uh, with the hell in her? Luckily, there's almost none in her. How, how do you um, deal with the little hell that's in her? Space. I'm sorry? Give her space. Give her space to be who she is. Give her space to work it out. Here's the thing. Uh, this, here's my, my wife wakes up and every morning, not most mornings, every morning she says the same thing. Number one, she wakes up extraordinarily obnoxiously positive. She's always positive. Every morning. She'll kiss me on the cheek every morning and she'll say, it's a great day for a great day. It's a great day for a great day. And she's not trying to prop herself up with that. She's in that space. She believes that. She's she, One of the first things she says a lot of days is, I love today. She said it this morning. I love today. And so really, I think it would be more her dealing with the hell in me than <laughs> vice versa. Oh, so you still have hell in you? Oh, well, I have, uh, um, I have uh, a few things that sometimes will, will uh, mess with my um, uh my positivity or uh, occasionally where uh, things that sometimes I'll get upset with things in the world and they really, they really, I, I want justice. You know, I want, I want things to be made right, which is one of the reasons I believe in God. Um, and so sometimes she'll hear that in me and she usually, she does the same thing. She gives me space. I would say she has to give me more space on things like that than I have to give her. What is that like? Being weaker than your wife, what's that like? Being more emotional and weaker than her, and then she see you like that. What is that like for you as a man, as a Christian, allowing your wife to see you that way? What is what does that feel like? I don't know what that feel like. Well, luckily, it's not at her. It's at the rest of the world. And so she'll generally agree with my opinion about it. She just doesn't have quite as passionate a reaction. And I don't consider it weakness. What, what we're talking about here, I mean, we're getting, if we want to get into the, the discussion of, of manhood, uh, we are, I believe that we are called to be providers. We're called to be protectors. We are called to right wrongs in the world. We're called to confront evil. And so I'm talking about things where it's me looking at the world and confronting evil. Um, I, I, don't, I don't consider that weakness. I will consider sometimes, now, God calls us to be meek. But meekness is not weakness. Meekness is power under control. So we have the power. Where, you know, Jordan Peterson talks about being dangerous, and we put it under control. If we're not dangerous, if we're not strong, then really, then being meek is just being weak. It's just weakness. Yeah, women. We have, women hate you know, men. Women hate men that are emotional, that are weak, that get upset and overreact. They'll go along with it for a while so that they can use you and control you, right? But inwardly, they hate men that are weak because of of the order of God. You know, God in Christ, Christ in man, man over woman and woman over children, right? And so women are subject. They need men to be strong to bring them out of the hell that they live in. 
But if the man is in hell too, acting like her, emotional, overreacting, getting upset, how can he bring her out of the hell she's in? And so she hates weakness. She has a love-hate relationship. Women hate men like that. I agree with you 100%. And I'm not that guy. When I said uh, the hell in me, again, I'm not sure. What, I wasn't sure of what your definition is there. Uh, the hell in me is more my, my – it's not it, – it isn't hell. It's actually my reaction and I think is a righteous indignation about sex trafficking, about things that they're doing to the family, about things that are lies that we know are perpetuated in the media. Uh, things that those are things that and they're more global issues. They're not like between us. And uh, while I'm, I had to learn in a growing up kind of in a maturity kind of a way to confront, you know, to know what I feel and how I'm dealing with something and know how that react, you know, people's reaction to that in the world. I'm not that guy. I'm, I'm, she definitely respects me and loves me as, um, as, as a strong man, as a provider, um, and as a protector, and as someone who would go to fight for her for anything. So we have that, that part of it. Um, as far as the hell in her, God says it this way. He says that women are supposed, he said, men, you're supposed to love your wives. Right. He says, you're supposed to respect your husbands. He never actually says you need to love them. He says you need to respect them, which is an interesting point. Uh, so it is my job given to me by God to love her. And so I'm going to do that, whatever that takes. Now it doesn't, and you're right. Women don't ultimately don't respect men who are, you know, crying all the time and caught up in their feelings and they can't figure this out and so-and-so did me wrong. Whatever. No, that's, that's, not, that's not stepping up to the plate. Me, I have a T-shirt I almost wore for this <laughs> that says, don't pray, don't pray for easy lives. Pray to be stronger men. Nice. Let me ask. Uh, ask. Um, you said that you have fear. Oh, two questions. I want to ask you about fear and I'll come back to fear. The things that you see happening in the world, what people going through, the war rumors and things like that, does those things, do those things bother you? Injustices in the world or people who are trying to attack things that are godly do bother me. And, and why does it bother you? It bothers me because I believe that the, because we are called uh, to confront evil. We are called to confront untruth. Uh, we are called, and, and so I see, when I see that, and I see people using it, not just using it for their own stuff, but they're actually hurting other people with it, and that their agenda is better, is more important than people's livelihoods or lives, that's when I, that's what, that's what upsets me. And it'll upset me for a little bit, but then what it does is it motivates me to do something about it. But God uh, tells us, his sons, to overcome the world and not be, up, be in it, but not of it, right? And so if you're, if you're personally bothered by the world and w what they're doing, then you're not going to be able to help if you're bothered by it. Because it's not happening to you, it's happening to them. And the reason it's happening to them is most people, not all, not all, but most people don't want to overcome their misery. They don't want to overcome their hell. They love their hell, and if you're being bothered by their hell, then that's going to keep you focused on that, and you won't be able to help them in the right way. We're not, well, supposed, to be, to we're not supposed to be bothered by what happens to others. 
Well, we, we I, should try to point the right way for those who want to overcome their hell, right? But I, we shouldn't be bothered by it, period, because if you're bothered by the world, then you're of the world. You're not just well, in it, because Christ wasn't bothered by the world at all, because he knew it wasn't them, it was the devil in them. They were possessed with evil in their head, in their minds and hearts. So he wasn't bothered by that. And that's why he helped those that wanted help. But if he had been bothered by it, he would not have been able to help because he would have identified with it as though it was happening to him. Well, well, I would, I would ask you then, then why did he uh, throw the tables around and, sh- and, and get the, the, the money changers out of the temple? He, uh, he he became a warrior at that point. Right. Uh, when he confronted when he confronted uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were using religion to lord it over people and create evil in the world, he confronted them directly. In Revelations, when he comes back, yeah, yeah. Here's my thing. I use Christ as the example for my manhood. And here's the balance. On one hand, to the outcast, to the hurting, to the downtrodden, he was the kindest gentlest, most beautiful, loving touch uh, ever. To the Pharisees, to the Sadducees, to those who had hurt children, he's the warrior with a double-edged, blood-drenched sword coming in to, to change things. And so I'm not saying I need to be all that. I'm not trying to get like you know overly dramatic about it. However, that I feel like is balance that we as men need to embrace. We need to be the loving touch. We need to be caring. We need to help those who are hurting and downtrodden to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to visit the people in prison. And at the same time, when I see, for instance, what I'll give you an example. When I see what's happening with sex trafficking, and we dealt with this because I helped plant a church in Las Vegas. And our church, we planted it, started a church in Las Vegas. Lord knows there's need for it. And we dealt directly, ultimately, we ended up dealing directly with people who were victims of sex trafficking. And some where we actually experienced, saw who the ones were doing it. That upsets me. That is something that is a righteous ignition. Why, though? Uh, Why does it upset you uh, when it's not, it wasn't happening to you? And, and if well, you were upset about it, how were you able to help them if you have gotten, made yourself a part of it? Well, uh, I'm not making myself a part of it. What when I'm you're doing, getting when upset I, about it, you are making yourself a part of it. Well, I don't think that by having a, I think that God gives us a feeling of, of wanting to create justice. That's why he, he, created some of us to be cops. He created some of us to be lawyers. He created some of us to be judges. He created some of us to uh, to be in the world as doctors. Okay, we get upset by people being hurt. And so I don't think that that's me being in the world. Let me I do think this. That that's, I'm sorry, let me do this because I'm trying to finish that point and then we're going to run out of time here. Uh, finish that okay. point, though. I want you to finish that point you're making. <laughs> Okay, well, so I don't believe that that's God, um, that, that's me being in the world. That's me being of God and his vessel in the world. He's, the Bible clearly says we are his hands. Well, right. what did his hands do? His hands would comfort those who are sick and hurting, and those his hands would, would bring justice to those who would hurt one of these. Well, Christ so, never got angry because he had no anger. He only had love. And love, real love is not an emotional thing at all. That emotion that people feel, the anger, 
the fake love that feel like you love and then you're up and down. That comes from hate. That's not love. God or oh, Christ had perfect love, which is not based on anything of the world, anyone or anything. Perfect love only comes from God. And in perfect love, there is uh, is, is a dispassionate love. Passionate love is from the devil. Dispassionate love is from God because it's in the world, but not of it. It's not based on how you feel about someone or don't. That's why we are able to love our enemies because we don't feel anywhere about our enemies. We neither love nor hate, right? So we love them with the right kind of love. But I got to ask you this. When Christ turned over the table, he wasn't emotional about turning over the table. He saw injustice. He dealt with it. But to the human's eye and to the people who are in a fallen state, it looked as though he was emotional because they're emotional and they're thinking that Christ is thinking and feeling what they feel, feel and he didn't. But I got it. Did you grow up closer to your mother or your father? Uh, I was um, pretty cl- a little closer to my mom because my dad was very distant. He was very emotionally unavailable. He was very much a dictatorial kind of uh, um, uh, disciplinarian. And uh, so I, uh, I probably grew up emotionally closer to my mom. And I am closer now because my father passed away. Um, my what, what I would say, though, is... So do you believe what? that, do you think that because you grew up so close to your mother that you took on her identity and that's why you're emotional, you get angry, you get upset because you have the identity of your mother and not your father? No. Uh, first of all, uh, I would say that I'm not, I'm not an angry person and I don't get emotional about things. I'm not that guy. Oh, I thought you said I've you got upset when you saw the traffic folks. Um, that's, I believe that, I think you and I might have a different opinion on this because I believe love's proper response to evil is justice and creating justice is what we are called to do. And so that might come out emotionally in a, um, as, as a, as an anger, but it's a, I believe that's a righteous anger. I do but believe why do you Christ need emotions? I believe Christ was angry when he turned those tables on. No, he, he discerned evil, but he didn't feel anything about it. Because he had perfect love. He, had, he was not all into the emotional thing. Only the people who uh, have anger in their hearts are into the emotional thing. But I got to ask you this. Um, did your father treat you the way he treated your mother? Um, he was more, he was physically abusive with me and he was usually not physically abusive with her, but he would, treat However, you. on the control side, on the control and the verbal abuse and the, and that kind of thing, there were, we had, there was four, I had three siblings and my mom. So there were five of us who other than my dad. And we used to say that the five of us, we used to realize that the five of us were kind of our own kind of cool family. And my dad was kind of outside of that because he was so controlling. And so, yeah, um, there was a, it, it actually, the anger that, um, that, that what I don't want to be is my dad in, in most cases, in most ways. How about because the anger? Is- However, um, uh, if, if something creeps out of me that I, um, uh, it's you, 
I feel like what I ended up with is something that because I've done the work, I've confronted how I grew up, I've worked, you know, worked with counseling, things like that, that I've gotten to a place where I feel like I have the right balance of what I would consider, um, you know, righteous anger, righteous indignation, but with it's love. I, I, you know, looking at the th- problems in the world, the first thing to do is to reach out and love. Have you, for, because of time, Mike, have you forgiven your mother? Have I what? Have you forgiven your mother? Yeah, I've forgiven everybody. You told, I've made a point of that. You told her you forgave her for what she did to you? She didn't really do anything to me. She didn't, I mean, do, anything, she didn't do anything to you? No, she didn't. Not anything that I still need to forgive her for. So did you forgive her? Again, I, I anything that would have been a minor point that I would have needed to forgive her about, I forgave her long ago. I love my mom. We get along great. I've forgiven, I've forgiven my father. I've forgiven my... Uh, so you, the, let me just ask you because of time. Did you forgive your mother? What's that? Did you forgive your mother for re- recreating your, her asked, image? You, you... Even though what? Did you forgive your mother for recreating you in her image, turning you away from your father and playing victim and, and causing you to identify with her? Did you forgive her for that? Well, she didn't do that. Um, that's that's well, why not, do you think you not... identify? Why do you think you see your father in the same way she sees him? As he, uh, because that's who he was. We both saw it for real, as would my siblings say the same thing. The, the thing about my, my, with, with my mom is that, um, she really, she became a role model in the person she was, but not in the female that she was. So, so the way she, the way she was willing to, um, work with things, the way she was willing to, to reach out to people was important to me. And had I chosen my father in all those ways, then I would be like him. And that wasn't what I wanted. Now, so my, here's the point you to understand going forward. I have since then, because I knew my father wasn't the right male role model, I have had older males in my life who have become model, role models like that. People who, who are men who I respect. My, I'm, sorry to cut, I'm sorry to cut you off, Mike, but they keep giving me the sign that we are. So give me two quick answers. Did you forgive your mother at all for anything? I have given... <laughs> For the fifth time, I have forgiven my mom for anything. Did you tell her that? Yeah, well, I haven't needed to, but yes. So you did tell her you forgive her for for the stuff you did that you didn't like about her? There just wasn't enough of it, but yes, we've gotten past any of that. And so you told her you forgave her for that, those things? I don't remember exactly when that, however, I haven't had a problem with it. I haven't usually have to forgive someone who's hurt you. And, and I didn't sense it was hurting me, so I haven't needed to forgive her. For but I'm a little confused because on one hand you say, yes, you forgave her. And then on the other hand, you say you didn't have to forgive her. Either you forgave her or you didn't. Which one? I, any of these small minor points that have gone along the way, like it upset me that she did some little thing or wouldn't let me do whatever. Yes, 100% I have forgiven her. Did you tell her Other that? Sounds like you're getting at something larger, and there's no larger issue to no, forgive. No, I'll tell you, I'm trying to find out is, did you tell her, I forgive you for what you did? Whatever what it was, did you tell her, I forgive you for what, whatever it was? Um, 
I have probably conveyed that in some way or another. I don't remember. There had, she and I have had such a great relationship for so long that there's not really been anything that I've needed to say that for. However, if you go back to when I was, what, 8 or 12 or 15 or some other you know, young age, yes. So you went to your mother and forgave, told her you forgive her for what she did? Give me a quick yes or no because of time. Yes. And how about your father? Did you forgive him? Yes. Did you tell him that? Yes. You told, you told your father? About two months before he passed away, I went to see him. And he was someone who had done a lot of bad things and uh, to my sister, to me, and to others in the world, to, especially to my mom. And, uh, and he was caught up in something that was not true. And so uh, through the divorce and through his threats and that kind of thing, uh, he wanted to confront me about it. And so he did. And I basically said to him, this is on, he's bedridden. And I said, uh, those things aren't true. Would you like me to tell you the truth? And he said, okay. And so I told him the truth, and he confronted it. That's one of those, the truth shall set you free. So I you, think God wants me to be there to help redeem him because he passed away two months later. Give me a quick and yes or no. Did you apologize? Did you apologize to him for resenting him? Yeah, we, yes. We, uh, I, I've said all those things. We said we had grace just, just almost physically enter the room. My, we had a I got to yeah, put you on the high seat, Mike, because of time here. And we can go on and on. I can tell we can talk for a long time. So I got to put you on the high seat. And I need you to answer okay. these questions as quickly as possible. All right. Okay. The hot seat. What is love? Uh, love is an effort you do for others, which ends up benefiting you as well as a default. Country music or rock and roll? Rock. Is America the best country on this side of heaven? Yes. True or false, abortion is worse than slavery. What? True or false, oh. slavery is worse than abortion. No, I'm sorry. Abortion is worse than slavery. True or false? Wow, that's an interesting point. True, I think. I'm sorry? True. Um, what is a man? Uh, a man is an adult male human being. Do educated women make for good wives and mothers? Absolutely. Did the bear shoot in the woods? <laughs> yes. <laughs> is climate real? Climate is change is climate change real? Yes, but I doubt it's man-made. Or it's, I, don't, I don't think it is existential threat. Did the cow eat the cabbage? I have no idea. <laughs> is the earth flat or round? Round. Should a man ever, 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 but ever, 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 ever tell a woman his problems? There are certain times, yes. Does a chicken have lips? I have no idea. <laughs> Did you have fun? I had a lot of fun. I like the fact that you're willing to confront me, even when I don't agree with you, man. I love the way you've gotten, done this. So this has been great. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on. I do and taking the hot seat as well.
tell the folks how they can get to your site and your whatever you want to put out there. Go ahead. Absolutely. Go to MikeRayburn.com. That's M-I-K-E-R-A-Y-B-U-R-N.com. That has my videos. It has my contact information. And uh, I'd love to continue the conversation. Um, Again, man, thank you so much for coming on. I do want to ask you one quick question. Can you be the son of God and still have fear? Can a person be the son of God or daughter and still have fear? Yes, because we're still human. Amazing. Thank you all for tuning in. I really, really appreciate it. Remember that the Father State is on locals.com. So click the link in the description to support our work. And don't forget to like, follow, check out the merch and all that good stuff. All right. I do appreciate it. Let me hear from you. Thank you again, Mike. That was fun. All right. Thank you, Jesse. All right, buddy. Thank you. Amazing. Amazing.